As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm here with uh, with my dad, John. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well, thanks, Tim. And uh, looking forward to our discussion about climate anxiety. Yes, a uh, bit of a gear change from the last few weeks, but today we're going to be talking about, about climate change, about mental health, young people. It's a, it's a really interesting topic that we've been enjoying doing some research for. Um, obviously, we, we're, we're talking, um, as everyone knows, and when this goes out, probably still during the time of, of the war in Ukraine, uh, which has been dominating the news agenda. Uh, and one of the things it's really squashed out, out of uh, existence, out of the coverage of, was a um, a really major report by the IPCC, that's the, the UN's kind of climate change body, um, which came out uh, in terrible, terrible timing on the 28th of February, just a few days after Putin sent the tanks into Ukraine. Um, but it was actually a really major report following on from the COP26 climate summit that was held in the UK just last year. Um, I don't know if you spotted that, John, when it came out. Yeah, no, I was very interested in the report, and uh, but also interested to see how it was being um, r- reported in in the mainstream media. And and by and large, it was again a fairly doom and gloom message, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it, it, the kind of top line the scientists were saying was basically that there is a very brief window of time, possibly to the end of this decade alone for us to act to avoid irreversible catastrophic destruction from climate change um uh, 40% of the world's population that's about 3 and a half billion people are described as highly vulnerable to climate crisis uh and they say if if rising temperatures is not kept to around 1.5 degrees celsius we we're going to see sweeping destruction of ecosystems habitats and entire species so it was a pretty pretty depressing gloom laden laden summary Yes, and, and uh, there was a expressly stated that inaction will lead to death, um, which I think at one level you can see the the seriousness, the importance of this. But there's another agenda here, isn't it, which is um, the need to try to raise uh, awareness and, and to try and impose a, a level of complacency. Yeah, and I mean, that's... That's why I think the the rhetoric is always turned up to 11. Um, because for the very reason we started off discussing, these reports are released on a basically annual basis and, and, they, and they, they slip down the news agenda incredibly quickly. In this case, they've been replaced by, admittedly, a major story, the, the crisis in Ukraine. But even so, it's very difficult for the scientists and for the, the UN to actually grab and then hold and sustain the world's attention outside of these kind of fleeting summits like COP26. Yeah, and I can imagine that a lot of uh, climate charities and activists must have felt rather frustrated that uh, their their moment to, to really um, take hold of the news agenda and promote their own perspectives w- was lost because of the dominance of, of the... Uh, the war story and I, I've heard it said that it takes the oxygen out of any other news story it's, there's only one story which people want to talk about yeah that's absolutely right and you can kind of understand understand why um, you know journalists in the media are always drawn towards something that's Im- immediate and that's closer to home and a war that's happening in our own continent 
uh, unprecedented in, in for, for decades and decades is always going to grab the attention more than the next kind of doom-laden step in this slow burn unfolding centuries-long issue of climate change which is I think has been the huge challenge for for kind of climate communicators scientists and activists all along is how do you grab people's attention and how do you drive policy responses when the issue is such an enormous long-term multi-lifespan kind of thing yeah and I think the question then really is is it possible that this very dystopian view of that that basically the planet is doomed that um whatever we do um disaster is threatening whether that is actually counterproductive whether it leads to a sense of of hopelessness and despair hmm i think there's certainly um you you can see a kind of growing thread among some of the narrative around climate change, which I think there's been a notable shift in the last five, maybe 10 years from this is a really urgent crisis, we must act. And that that thread remains, but there's a new theme, which is uh, it's too late or it's almost too late. And, and there's a sense in which that fatalism and nihilism and depression sets in among people who would otherwise, you'd think, be kind of very engaged and motivated to hear the message are starting to say particularly the younger people do you know what what's the point you know the 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 baby boomers the old the adults in the room have ruined it have screwed up our lives and our futures and and that actually it paradoxically can have the risk of leading to kind of less action rather than more yes and and certainly i was interested to go back and and read the IPCC report with some care. I mean, you know, I have to say straight away that uh, neither of us are experts on climate change, but nonetheless, it's obvious that this is a major issue. Uh, to, to coin a phrase, it's a matter of life and death, and therefore, it's important that we um, think about it. And um, I, I waded my way through this ex- enormous report. I mean, it's utterly amazing, that, of course, that all this information and data is available entirely free on the internet. The, if you download the entire IPCC report with all the data, it's over 200 megabytes, all, way, all entirely free and available for anybody to, to read and study. So, which that in itself is quite remarkable, isn't it? I mean, it, certainly the authorities can't be accused of hiding information or, you know, uh, which, which is often, again, conspiracy theories uh, or theorists would, would claim. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I, th- I think the information is there. The problem is, is, is a, almost of information overload. There is so much information in there that trying to see the wood for the trees is, is pretty difficult. Yes, and I think that leads to, to why sometimes the messaging... So, you know, so I think it's important to stress, of course, neither of us are climate scientists, but we all accept the reality of climate science. We both, you know, think that the people who spend their lives studying this stuff know what they're talking about and we need to hear hear their conclusions. But but there's a distinction between the science in the report and the rhetoric with which it is promoted and and shared. Um, and, and I think it's because the report is dense, because climate science is complex and it's slow and it's accumulative, um, I think there is a there's a need to kind of layer on top of that uh, a, a more comprehensible message, and there is a risk that sometimes that message is always getting dialed up in 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 extremities more and more because you know the last year's report didn't cut through, so this year's got to cut through. We got to really make sure that the the kind of the quotes that go with it are are as terrifying as possible, and that's how you get things like I mean, for example, the the UN Secretary General. Um, called it an atlas of human suffering uh, at a press conference and said delay means death and you know I'm sure he would say that those are those kind of sentiments are justified by the content of the report but it's a it's a message which is you know the the doom mongering is certainly being being dialed up as high as it can go yeah and it's interesting that if drilling down into some of the details of this report the, the scientists gave five different scenarios looking <clears throat> forward to the end of the century, all the way to 2100. Um, and they, the scenarios were dependent on the level of, of response and mitigation that the global community uh, undertook. 
And the best case scenario, scenario uh, number one, is where temperature change as a whole over the entire century peaks at just over 1.5 and remains uh, around that level all the way through the end of the century. Um, scenario two, it peaks just below two and, and then slightly goes down. Scenario three, it goes up to two and a half degrees at the end of the century and is continuing to rise. And then scenarios four and five are much worse, um, increasing to four degrees or, or five degrees. And those are basically scenarios where no real action is taken uh, between now and the end of the century. Humanity just carries on blithely pouring out CO2 into the atmosphere and doing nothing, which realistically, I think it's extraordinarily hard to imagine that, that that's going to happen, isn't it, over the next yes. six, 80 years of the century, that humanity is not going to do anything? Exactly. I mean, even if we, you know, even if humanity collectively forgot or willfully chose to ignore the fact that we know about climate change, it's actually just economics, you know, new wind and solar energy um, is is at present cheaper in many places in the world to install than building a coal or gas powered um, uh, fuel, uh, power station. And and so I think e the idea that we're going to carry on digging out coal and burning it at the current rate as the population increases for the next 80 years is is simply impossible. It's not going to happen, even even if we didn't want to act on climate change. E you know, economics is going to make us choose, thankfully, some greener technologies because they are just cheaper and better and, and better for business. Yeah, and, and one of the things which I found utterly astonishing is the way that the, all the major car companies are committed to phasing out both uh, petrol, gas and, and diesel engines and converting entirely to plug-in electric vehicles by the nine by the 2030s um 2040s at the latest so um there are extraordinary changes going on which means that in realistically it's much more likely that we're looking at scenarios somewhere between one and two probably realistically given the changes that are already underway and the, and the other changes that are likely to happen and I think when you look at that, then there's no doubt that, yes, even these good scenarios, there is going to continue to be significant global impact across the world, particularly in the poorest countries and sub-Saharan Africa and so on, and the low-lying countries. Uh, but the doomsday scenario seems exceedingly unrealistic. Yes, and I think it's when you hold up that data in the IPCC report with some of the more extreme claims among climate activists that you start to see how divergent the two sides who should ostensibly be on the same side, you know, the Greta Thunbergs, your, your green activists of the world should be in lockstep with, with climate science. And yet many of them are actually, when you read or dig into some of their messaging, it's really diverging from what we're talking about from these IPCC the realistic IPCC uh, kind of emission pathways. I mean, one that really jumped out to me, I, I recently watched the film um, Don't Look Up, uh, which is on Netflix, which is a kind of uh, explicit satire of climate complacency. It's about um, two scientists touring the world, trying to raise awareness of the fact that a, a meteorite is crashing on, on a collision course with Earth and no one wants to listen and takes them takes them seriously. And the director, Adam Kay, who, who, who made the film to try and, um, you know, Tr uh, trigger people's associations with climate complacency he he's on the record as saying we've got six to eight years before the climate is so chaotic we live in a permanent state of biblical catastrophe um and f he made that comment on twitter and fascinatingly um one it's not true but two underneath it the initial the first reply i found was by a british climate scientist saying hang on that's that's not true where's your evidence don't like it's bad but it's not that bad and you've got a you you know you adam k have got a significant um platform here why are you spreading what is effectively kind of hysteria that's right and uh, i was very struck by a piece in the atlantic magazine where uh, it quoted um a number of ipcc scientists who's saying Basically, they expect that even in the realistic worst projections that they've come across, in other words, the four and the five, the terrible outcomes, they say that, in fact, they expect that average life expectancy will continue to rise, that poverty and hunger rates will continue to decline, 
and that average incomes across the world will, will go up. Hmm. Uh, climate change will ruin individual lives and kill individual people, and it may drag down the rate of improvement in human well-being, but on average, we're generally in the climate change field and not talking about futures that are worse than today. Yes, and that's a message that you really just have to struggle to find, I think, in, in the contemporary media. Um, I think there's plenty of complacency. There's a lot of dismissal, from, particularly from some parts of the media, about the problem. And then on the other side, there's a lot of alarmism. But it is quite hard, I think, to find that message that, yes, things are bad and we must act now. But even in the worst case scenario, the world in 2100 is going to be better than it, is in the, it was in the year 2000. Yes, and, and of course, we don't want to um, dismiss the concerns because I think what is becoming clearer and clearer is that this, I'm afraid, is another justice issue. What will happen is the rich countries who are able to protect themselves, who are able to switch to electrical vehicles, who are able to use uh, cheap energy to do their air conditioning and various mitigation, uh, will be able to carry on living their lives largely unaffected and the people across the globe whose, whose lives are potentially going to be very severely impacted are the poorest of the poor. Um, and so climate change becomes yet another factor which increases the, the diversity between the rich and the poor across the globe. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it's, you'd hate to live in a world in 2100 where there is this kind of, you know, climate apartheid where us in the UK or the US have managed to mitigate and adapt. Uh, as you say, we're using we're using cheap solar energy, we're driving electric vehicles, our air is mostly clean. Uh, um, whereas people in, you know, the Seychelles and Vanuatu and Bangladesh are, are living in a really kind of hellish hellish landscape where their, their, their cities have been wiped out by rising seawater and, and they have no ability to cope with the kind of soaring temperatures. Um, yeah, and it isn't just the low-lying areas because uh, projections would suggest that uh, you know large areas of, of sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa as well would be almost unlivable. You know, once you get to temperatures in the forties, um, baseline air temperatures in the forties, um, without continuous air conditioning, it, it's simply not possible for human beings to mm. to live in those conditions, and therefore. The worry is that large areas of the tropical regions may become almost uninhabitable. And I think it's it's that kind of fears which is driving, when you look at younger people, the people who will inherit this world, basically my generation, but really below in their teens and 20s, they're increasingly fatalistic about the climate crisis. I mean, I don't know if you saw this fascinating survey that asked 10,000 16 to 25 year olds across 10 different countries about climate change. And, and the results were really very damning. I mean, more than half of them said that they believed, quote, humanity was doomed. Three quarters said that the future was frightening. 55% said that they believed that they would have fewer opportunities than their parents. Um, and 39% said they were reluctant to have children at all. Yeah, so so this is, I th this is a very, very interesting and I think important article. It was published in The Lancet in December 2021. And we'll, it's on... Uh, free access and we'll um, put the link in the notes to this podcast but um, as you say it gives this very very strong impression of uh, the, the levels of uh, both anxiety but also senses of hopelessness um, amongst young people and and fascinatingly it's across the world uh, they 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 sampled countries ranging from brazil Finland, France, India, Nigeria, Philippines, UK, USA, and so on. And uh, although there were subtle differences between the countries, actually what's remarkable is, is how similar uh, attitudes are from young people ac across the world. And in the, in the discussion on the paper, they, they focused on the fact that it's large numbers of young people across the world regard governments as failing to acknowledge or act on the crisis in a coherent, urgent way or respond to their alarm. And this is experienced as betrayal and abandonment, not just of the individual, but of young people and future generations generally. Hmm. 
So it's. Do you think that that it's causing serious mental health problems then for younger people? This this you know climate anxiety goes beyond a kind of frustration to actually a kind of almost a clinical level of anxiety. Yeah, I do, and and um, there's quite a lot of evidence showing uh, significantly higher rates of expressed uh, mental health symptoms amongst young people and students than we've ever seen before. Uh, the the percentage of, of young people who would describe themselves as anxious or um, concerned about the future, unable to sleep, um, filled with feelings of foreboding and so on. Um, and of course, this is not just climate change. There are lots of other factors, um, concerns about employment and about inflation and, and, and so on. But... Um, I think mental health specialists are aware there's been a I think, massive increase in referrals of uh, children and adolescents, young adults, to mental health services in the UK and, and across the world. And there's undoubtedly climate anxiety is part of this. Hmm. There was another survey by the American um, Psychological Association of 2,000 people in, in the US um, and and they they um, said that more than two thirds of adults reported saying they felt at least a little eco anxiety, but when you look at eighteen to thirty four year olds in particular, uh, nearly half of them said that they feel stress over climate change in their daily lives. Um, uh, so it's really something which is is not just a, a few kind of particularly eco conscious and aware teenagers, but this is actually. Some of the research seems to be saying that 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 eco anxiety, whatever you call it, climate stress, is something which is afflicting significant minority, if not nearly half, of of young people. Yeah, and I was very struck by these figures from the Lancet article, particularly these two. First of all, fifty five percent saying humanity is doomed, and thirty nine percent saying I am hesitant to have children. That seems to me extraordinarily serious. Um, If almost half of young people, when polled, say that given this level of sense of doom and gloom, they really wonder whether they should be bringing children into the world, um, that that seems to me extraordinary and, and, and very concerning. Do you think we can point the finger at some of the more extreme fringe of the climate kind of um, activists? I mean, there's a famous video that's shared around um, Extinction Rebellion Circle, which is called Advice to Young People as They Face Annihilation. Um, you know, so the, so the message they're hearing is is that that climate change is an existential threat, that the literal yeah. survival of their species is at yeah. risk. Um can we blame young people in that sense when when um, the, the scientists and others are saying are kind of a feeling filling the, the kind of airwaves with with this kind of doom mongering well I think what we're saying is it isn't the scientists apart from a few mavericks um, but it is activists who have their own agenda and uh, the more you know if I'm an activist for extinction rebellion um, of course, the whole narrative of extinction, extinction Rebellion is that we are about to become extinct unless we rebel. Mm. And <clears throat> we've got to be desperate because we're facing extinction. And the fact, you know, the inconvenient truth that actually that's not what leading climate scientists are saying. Nobody is talking about the possible extinction of humanity in the next 50 to 100 years. Um is is not something that um, the activists want to to reflect. They so so well, I, why I, is that? Do you think what what in whose interest? Why have activists got themselves to a place where if the news if the true news isn't bad enough, they almost invent bader news, like worse news? That's the fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're supposed to be a journalist. You're supposed to be able to use the English language. Worse news, like what what is going on there? What why what what why would human beings do that? And it's interesting, isn't it? And But I think, you know, if you're a cynic, you would say, um, because it serves my interest, because um, this way I can get um, better funding, better awareness, um, support for my 
particular charity and so on, um, irrespective of the <clears throat> balance and the truth of of what I'm uh, of what I'm uh, disseminating. I wonder as well if there's something about um, because for so many years the news genuinely was quite bad, and and the scientists would come back each year with with quite negative scenarios. I think there's a there's a part of the green mentality for those who are who have taken that on as a form of identity that is conditioned themselves to everything must always go as bad as it can. So genuinely good news like you know the falling price of solar or wind or the improvements in battery technology. Um, um, or even the science suggesting, as you say, that you know average well-being and incomes will still rise even in the worst-case scenario. They almost can't compute that because their whole identity is based on the idea that humanity is shooting itself in the foot over and over again. Yeah, I think I think there's there's definitely something in that. Um, but what is interesting is that if you take the Lancet um, article as um, representative is how extraordinarily widespread these attitudes you know how successful the climate doom doomsayers have been mm. and um i mean we're coming to the end aren't we, we we're going in our subsequent part two of this podcast i think it's really important to try to reflect together on on this from a, a christian perspective and, and say how do we uh, reflect about uh, and somehow balance between yes it's really important that we uh, are responsible in the way that we look after the climate and yes Christians need to be very fundamentally involved in creation care whilst at the same time no we don't fall into this terrible pessimism and doom about God's world yes because I think it's important to note that that not it's not only that the pessimism is is unwarranted as we say it's not attached to the actual science it doesn't follow the facts but it's actually also really counterproductive uh you know for for one it, it gives a fuel to kind of climate denialism because the people who would like to be complacent and do nothing can point to the more extreme fringe and some of those extreme predictions that won't come true and say well this is why we can ignore the actual moderate scientists but it also um there are things that we can do. I mean, I was really struck by uh, a quote by one of the authors of the IPCC report we mentioned at the start, uh, Helen Adams uh, from, from King's College London. She said this, one of the things that I think is really, really clear in the report is that, yes, things are bad, but actually the future depends on us, not on the climate. And what she's really trying to say is we need to stave off fatalism because if we, if we slip into fatalism, it's almost self-fulfilling. The worst will happen if we don't act because we believe that it's too late and it's not too late the scientists are clear that it's not too late and that this kind of pessimism and fatalism could be really corrosive to gathering a movement that can press governments around the world to take more radical costly action to to reduce emissions yeah i absolutely agree with that but i would also like to come back and say i think christian's understanding of the future is fundamentally different from this um, secular understanding that the future is created and fashioned by us in the present um and it'd be interesting to try and sort of reflect together on those different understandings of of, of what the future actually is hmm. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash 
matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And what we wanted to do this week is is kind of move the conversation on to what would be a Christian response to to climate catastrophe, to uh, to the possibility of climate crisis. What what we don't want to fall into nihilism and fatalism and doom, but we also can't simply be complacent, can we? No, we certainly can't. And and I think it's it as as of, as always. It's you know there's this tendency to polarization, isn't there? That that Christians can easily polarize into two two groups those who see um a preoccupation with creation care as as somehow secondary and and slightly suspect and and not a central concern uh for christians and and then on the other hand those who see this as the most pressing issue of the age and um and and feel that this this ought to be one of the central concerns of christian people hmm I think the place I would want to start is to say, as you mentioned last week, that that this is a, a critical issue for the church to be engaged on, if nothing else, because it is a justice issue, because it's a it's an issue in which the least, the last and the lost. You know, what the Bible talks about is the widow, orphan and stranger, the most vulnerable people in, in ancient Israeli is, Israelite society uh, who, 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 us, who, the, who we should have a special concern for. Those people today, you could argue, are, are some of the people on the brunt of climate change in the poorest countries in the world who are experiencing the worst um, when it comes to, to kind of extreme weather events, rising sea levels, um, heat waves. And so Christians, if they really do claim to love all of God's people, and in particular the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, we can't ignore the fact that, that the, the, it's the voices of the church, really, in the majority world, in the global south. If you ask Christians living in, in, in Pacific islands or in sub-Saharan Africa uh, or elsewhere, they are saying that actually we need, we need you to act on this because this is a priority for them. Yeah, and uh, this really came home to me some years ago with my friend Vinod Ramachandra, who is a Sri Lankan uh, theologian and commentator, and and he sees this very much as a a north south issue because um, you know he is somebody who who lives in Sri Lanka and uh, and who sees the damaging effects of, of climate change across the the poor countries of the world and and yet the outrage is that it was the rich people who who burnt the coal who put the carbon dioxide who lived off the fat of the land uh in previous generations and now it's the poor people uh across the world who are suffering whilst the rich people carry on and and he has a great sense of frustration that that message is not taken on by Christian people generally, the, 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 this deep crushing injustice that's at the heart of it. Hmm. It's almost, a, it sounds almost a bit like one of Jesus's parables, you know, how the rich man burns all the coal and then the poor man is the one whose home is ruined, ruined by it. It's almost poetic in its kind of sense of injustice in that sense. Well, it is. And, but it, it doesn't have a good ending um, unless, um, there is some dramatic change, isn't there? Because, you know, we, we talked about uh, in, in the previous episode that uh, the paradox is that rich people who have created this problem are also in the position to protect themselves from the worst consequences. We can have air conditioning, we can invest in electric vehicles and um, solar panels and so on. Uh, whereas that the poor, as things are at the moment, uh, the, the great danger is that they're going to be, many of them living in catastrophic conditions that maybe areas of the world which just become uninhabitable. Yes. And I think that strikes, what that strikes home for me is that a, a Christian response to climate change absolutely must include efforts to cut your own emissions, you know, where possible, switch to more sustainable forms of transport, you know, home insulation, all the classic lists that we're familiar with about how we can we can do our bit but it has to look like more than that because it also 
as you say, um, we can't retreat into our kind of comfortable, wealthy isolation from the rest of the world. So that I think a, a, a Christian justice response on this issue must also look like lobbying governments, uh, joining kind of climate movements. And, and as I said before, amplifying voices of the church in the global south, in the majority world, let, letting their voices rise to the top and actually influence the conversation. Yes, and it is sad to me how um, for, for many decades, uh, particularly amongst evangelical Christians, it's been quite unusual, until relatively recently, it's been unusual for evangelical Christians to, uh, to see creation care as being something uh, of high priority. And um, uh, you're probably aware there was a very famous uh, article written by a historian, Lynn White, uh, back in the 1960s, I think it was, which argued that uh, the roots of the environmental catastrophe, which was starting to be recognised at that time, uh, was in uh, the Judeo-Christian concern for the, the centrality of humanity and therefore the exploitation of nature that White argued that it was at the very heart of Christian Christianity was this uh, exploitation, uh, 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 treating nature almost with contempt as, as just a, a, a raw material that was there for human beings. And I think regardless of the merits of our overall argument, it's hard to deny that there has been a strain of Christian thinking Sometimes people use the language of dominion, which 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 I would argue misinterprets Genesis, but basically reads Genesis to say, you know, there's a hierarchy in created order and humans have been put at the top by God. And that means that we can do anything we want with those who are below us, you know, animals, plants and fundamentally created order itself. Yeah, and I've been very struck by um, a new book, which is just published in the last year called John Start on Creation Care, um, actually edited by uh, a friend of mine now, sadly deceased, Sam Berry, who was professor of genetics in the University of London, uh, who was a Christian and who was very concerned about creation care. And he has done an enormous uh, work pulling together um, John Stott's sermons, writings, uh, going right back to the 1970s uh, on the topic of creation care. And uh, it's called John Stott on Creation Care. I, I strongly recommend it. And what it shows is that Stott was extraordinarily ahead of his time. And back in the 1970s and the 1980s, he had come to the conclusion, just reading the scriptures, that um, the care of creation was, was a central uh, Christian calling. And he had this uh, concept that uh, in, in the original creation, God creates us in harmony with himself in harmony with one another and in harmony with the whole world of nature, with the created order. And that what happens at the fall is that all three of those relationships get distorted and damaged and there's alienation comes in both between us uh, with God, with one another and with, with, with nature. And that part of the whole good news about redemption and restoration is the restoration of those three relationships. And so in that sense, could you argue that part of God's mission of making all things new, of course, centrally, that's about restoring the broken relationship between humankind and their creator God through the work of Jesus on the cross. But in that sense, could it also be unfolding by the church and God's people repairing and restoring their relationship that's been impaired with, with creation? And so acting to sustain and protect and rebuild creation is in itself a kind of deeply spiritual kingdom act. That's absolutely right. And that's what Stott himself says. And, and in his book, uh, The Radical Disciple, which was the last book he wrote when he was already uh, extremely elderly and, and facing his own death, he, he said, it stands to reason, therefore, that God's plan of restoration includes not only our reconciliation to God and to each other, but in some way the liberation of the groaning creation as well. And uh, he, he, he said, this is the Bible teaching which has to be behind our response to the ecological crisis. It's extraordinarily prescient for an evangelical leader in the 70s to be 
talking about this obviously long before my time but you can confirm that wasn't really a a prominent theme of preaching and teaching uh, was it in the church at that point what why do you think john stott was so far ahead of his time or more conversely why were so few others reading the bible and drawing the same conclusion well it's a, it's it's a very good question and 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 you are absolutely right he was uh ahead of his time i think if he was here and and he you asked him he would say it's all about double listening just remind us uh, what would, double listening is one so time. double listening means that on the one hand we're called to listen to the bible and listen to the word of god speaking in the bible but at the same time we've got to listen to the world we've got to listen to the secular world and listen to the questions uh, that it's raising and and it was he didn't just talk about this he actually practiced it he was very deeply concerned to be listening and uh, and hearing the questions that were being raised and therefore you know, although he was committed to preaching the Bible and to leading a church in central London, he was also reading and studying about, you know, people like Lynn White and, and the ecological crisis. And there was a famous book about uh, catastrophe uh, called Silent Spring, which was about pollution in the environment and so on. And and he was asking them the questions, how how can we respond to this from, from the Christian um, perspective, and so I, I think it was his very awareness of these trends going on in the secular world that forced him to go back to a deeper understanding of, of scripture and to say, "This is here; we need to respond to it." I wonder also if there was a sense of unease or concern or even scepticism among some Christians, evangelicals, when talking about this issue because the kind of green narrative seemed to veer towards. A, a kind of pantheism or, or Gaia or kind of pagan ideas about worshipping Mother Earth and worshipping the creation and they were kind of drilled in a Protestant uh, reformed sense in which you know it's all about the word and about individual faith and, and we don't really kind of want to mess around with that physical mucky stuff of soil between our fingers. No I, I think you're right and I, I think certainly in the time I remember as a, as a student there was this almost pantheistic sense about mother earth mother nature and which, which did seem very um pagan and and pre-christian um and of course that that's also true uh, about many of the original uh inhabitants of the of, of the countries of, uh, of of the nations wasn't it that they had an almost uh, pantheistic uh, sense of, of being wedded with with nature and, and so you can see how Christianity could be seen as something that that is completely different and that says no it's human beings that matter and that mm. and that we don't need to worry about nature so it's a sort of reaction against what was seen as a pagan uh, respect for for nature which of course if you if you look into the history it, that's completely false that really all the way back uh, to the very earliest uh, Christian experiences have always been an emphasis on on respecting and caring for nature as being part of our Christian duty definitely I, I mean I wonder whether there was a, an unhelpful muddying of the waters during the kind of enlightenment industrial revolution era where you know humans suddenly realized that they could mold and reshape the, the creation that they could pluck materials and resources out of the earth and smelt them and melt them and build them and, and burn them and, and create new things and there was a sense in which that the earth is bountiful and none it will never run out and 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 there's a kind of almost an extractive mindset and i wonder whether that happened at a time when you know a deep kind of christendom era when the church and and state were, were kind of closely merged and whether some of that extractive mindset started to to seep into into Christian thinking, you know, God put all this good stuff in the earth for us to use as we see fit. And by, you know, mining and burning and destroying and logging, we're actually, it's part of our creative mandate to build and reshape creation. No, I think there's definitely something in that. And and you can see how particularly uh, in the States where um, the pioneers are just finding these vast resources of endless uh, space to to explore and to exploit uh this this idea that, that that god has just given us all this 
this bountifulness just so that we can exploit it for our own purposes. You can see how that comes in, but it, I think if you take this fundamental idea of an alienation between human humanity and nature, uh, which is the result of the fall, um, then our goal is to have a much more harmonious, a much more respectful and and godly relationship, a respect and care for for the goodness of creation which he's given us. So if there is this alienation, this um, severing of the relationship that we're supposed to have between mankind and and uh, and creation should is it not appropriate therefore for christians to also fall into the same pessimism that we were talking about last week it's quite a seems like quite a serious issue if and i assume you're going to say no the question is why not why do we despite the kind of serious situation we find ourselves in when it comes to the environment why do we not why should we not fall into into pessimism why do we have a different view of the future yeah and i think this is a really interesting and fundamental difference between uh, contemporary common understandings of the future that we find in the West and, and, uh, and specifically Christian understanding. And I think one way of thinking about it is, is two different pictures of, of what the future represents. I think that within the contemporary secular world, the future is regarded as something which we construct it, it's it's blank it's it doesn't exist but we make choices here in the present and as we make choices in the present we are constructing we are building we are fashioning the future and it's a bit like building a wall brick by brick the choices we make now are building the future and and if you think about the the narrative about the climate change that is how it is isn't it the choices we've made bad choices in the past this is going to have catastrophic consequences. Now we need to make some good choices so that we can build a different future. Uh, the, the problem with this way of understanding is, is that it, it gives us this crushing sense of responsibility uh, because, you know, if we build, a, build this wall badly, if we put a bad brick into the wall, then catastrophe is going to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. And I think some of the doom and gloom we were looking at in the, in the last episode about these high levels of despair and hopelessness that you see in young people about the future of the planet is this idea that uh, we have constructed a terrible future and there's nothing we can do about it. There's a kind of fatalism. So I want to contrast that with what I see as, a, as a, an authentically Christian understanding of the future. And here it's not like building a wall but it's actually that there's a huge river flowing um, and it's the river of God's plans and purposes for the cosmos. And this river starts before the foundation of the, of the world. It goes throughout the entire history of cosmos and it goes on into the future and into the final, the creation of the new, the new heaven and the new earth and so on. And we are called to make good choices here and now is a bit like throwing something into the river which has downstream consequences but we cannot affect the long-term direction of the river the river is under the under god's providential concern and care and his his drama his 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 purposes are being enacted whatever we do and that gives a sense of liberation because it doesn't all rest on us. It doesn't all rest on fallible human beings creating the future. And yes, that doesn't mean we can act irresponsibly, but it, it isn't all on our shoulders. Hmm. That's really helpful, isn't it? Because it, it, it uh, as you say, it liberates us. And in that sense, that releases us from saying, well, if I don't do the exactly the right kind of kind of climate activism, the, the, the end is going to be awful because we say... Um, it's in God's hands and rather than that leaving leading us to kind of apathy and saying well if it's in God's hands I'll sit back and do nothing it's, it leads us to say I'll I'll work hard but I won't um you know uh, burn myself out or or, or or torment myself into a state of, of nervous anxiety because it's ultimately it's not my job to fix this problem yes and and some theologians have pointed to the sabbath as, as a sign of this so that God works for six days in the in the creation and then on the seventh day he rests and celebrates 
And then he calls his people to enter into this same pattern. So we work for six days. But we can dare to stop working. We can dare to celebrate and enjoy because it doesn't all rest on us, because the, there's a bigger narrative there. Some of this the sense of freedom and reminds me of a really fascinating essay um, by C.S. Lewis called On Living in an Atomic Age, which was written, I think, in the, the late 1940s or the 1950s when mankind, when humanity was waking up to the reality that we'd created these new weapons which could wipe out life as we knew it in an instant. And that was a time of, um, if you look back in the history, there was extreme nervousness, anxiety. There, were, there was a lot of fatalism at that point as well for different reasons. Um, and, and he wrote this whole piece which is kind of saying, actually, it's not Christian to cower in in fear because life might be kind of nasty brutish and short um uh, and I just want, i'll just read a little quote here it's obviously about atomic atomic weapons but i think it has some relevance to climate change it says this if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb let that bomb when it comes find us doing sensible and human things praying working teaching reading listening to music bathing the children playing tennis chatting to our friends over a pint in a game of darts not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. Uh, they may break our bodies, but they need not dominate our minds. Nothing is more likely to destroy a species or a nation than a determination to survive at all costs. Um, for those who care for something else more than civilization are the only people by whom civilization is at all likely to be preserved. Those who want heaven most have served earth best. Those who love man less than God do most for man. And, and obviously it's quite different because atomic weapons would, would, would be an instantaneous threat as opposed to this kind of slow burn one that we're facing with climate change. But I really love the idea that um, not to dampen enthusiasm, to mitigate it, but let's not let it dominate our lives and, 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 and kind of cast a pall over the rest of this century, this idea that, that the world crisis is coming, but actually let, let us use it to sharpen us, but to act in a more thoroughly human and Christian way. Yeah, that is really good, isn't it? And and that does really seem to me like a healthy antidote to these very negative attitudes, um, which we saw last week in so many young people. I, I was just thinking that one of the statistics we looked at last week was this extraordinary percentage uh, of people, I think it was nearly 40%, who said they were uncertain about having bringing children into this world. And and it's something I've been asked from time to time, you know, when doing Q&A uh, talks and so on, is what possible reason can you have for having children when uh, the future looks so threatening and, and isn't it irresponsible to have children? Um, and my answer, which of course is not original, many other people have made the same answer, is that it's precisely because the future is threatening that we need to bring human beings into the world who are going to respond in a in a godly and appropriate and positive way. Um, so quite the reverse. Uh, it's it's the same kind of message, isn't it? That that our calling is to live our lives fully now, not cowering, uh, expecting catastrophe to to wipe us from the planet. Hmm. I think the flip side of that and just because we come to land this episode is i think there's there's another thread we haven't touched on which i want to talk about briefly which is amongst all all the, the excellent stuff that we've talked about about you know creation care and social justice um and having a hope for the future i think there is a really a good place for the church to also um respond to climate crisis with lament as well um i think it it's, it's a healthy biblical theme to see to to to, to express lament over things that have been lost and destroyed, over bad things that have happened. And I think there's a real healthy role for the church, again, particularly in the global south, to help its local communities process and express their grief and trauma over experiencing kind of climate catastrophes and natural disasters and the loss of habitats and homes. And that's not in opposition to also acting, but I think it's it's a really Christian and biblical idea to say, actually, you know, God is also saddened by the extinction of that species or by by the deaths of people from uh, climate crisis uh, and the church should kind of help you sit there in the grief and say yes like it's right that you feel sad and here's maybe some language some liturgy some music to help you do that yeah no i i think definitely think that is um, has got some real power to it and and the the language of lament is, is something which again, often seems rather alien to many modern Christian traditions. 
and uh, I, I'm sometimes struck by how sort of Christian worship so often has this incredibly feel good, you know, where everything's wonderful, isn't it? Posit- we're positive. God is blessing us. God is changing us. God is changing the world. Isn't it fantastic? And then you go and you read the Psalms, and and so many of the Psalms are pouring out this these laments. Uh, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? Uh, and and it strikes me that 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 note of lament is something which I think we often do need to recover. Um, and and what the biblical language of lament gives us is it gives us faithful language. You know, the Bible understanding of lament is it's not faithlessness, it's not absence of faith. It's it's claiming God's character and, and it's giving us faithful language to express our senses of loss and 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 concern. Definitely. Definitely. We wanted to end not just by talking about some ideas, but actually by pointing to some some places to take these these thoughts um you, you mentioned earlier a, a rosher uh there are there are superb christian charities you said john stott involved in helping found found them uh they're, they're a charity that work bigger than just climate issues around all kinds of um, environmental issues sustainability but the climate is a part of their work and um, i'd really encourage people to if they haven't heard of them to have a look at their website a particularly excellent program they run is something called eco church i'm not sure if you've come across that before john yeah, I've heard it, and I've heard it talked about, but I, I I'd be interested to learn some more. I think you've you did some research on that, didn't you? Yeah, well, I've done some reporting on it in the past. It's a it's a program that's it's um gone going on for a few years, and it's basically uh it's a it's an online survey that you do as a congregation, um, and you kind of work your way through, and it asks you questions around all things. So it covers you know creation care, worship and teaching, your management of your church buildings, management of your church land, individual lifestyles, community and your global engagement. And as you work this questionnaire and answer questions about how you're doing, it, it, it not only points you towards action, but it kind of says, right, you can then win an Eco Church Award, I think bronze, silver and gold, as your church kind of goes on this journey of becoming more alive to, to the climate crisis and to creation care. And I, I know lots of churches who've gone on this and, and started off being like, oh, we probably should do something about the environment. We're not sure what, where to begin. And, and it's a really great scheme. You can sign up online. I think that helps kind of um, ground all your action in, in theology and in the Bible. We know we're not, it's not identical to what secular activists are doing, but it's, it's also lifts your eyes up to the global church and to the world and says, how can your community, your congregation play its part? So that's a really great uh, place to go if you're looking for something practical to do in response. Yeah, so I think we'll put some links, won't we, to um, some good resources, books, uh, websites, and uh, information, particularly about Arosha, which was one of John Stott's uh, key uh, concerns and and preoccupations. Mm. And lastly, the other one I would mention that is really active in this space is the charity Christian Aid, uh, they're kind of fundamentally a, an anti-poverty charity, but they they make the point that uh, you can't end poverty without also tackling climate change, as we mentioned, because it affects the poorest communities the most. And so it's become a real priority of their work in recent years, particularly uh, overseas. So again, if you go to their website, Christian Aid, um, there, there's plenty of ways you can take action. You can um, amplify and support financially or in prayer uh, campaigns by, by churches in, in poor parts of the world. Um, uh, and just lastly there's also if you want to get more on the activist side there's a group called christian climate action um slightly more on the radical end they kind of do things like non-violent civil disobedience uh lobbying um uh, and protest um and uh, you know I, I i'm not as familiar with them and i'm not necessarily endorsing everything they do or say but i found this really interesting kind of list of of kind of their overarching values and principles which kind of which we talked about before uh, you know why should christians be engaged in climate action and um which is really helpful we'll put a link to that as well great thanks so much tim it's been a been a good discussion yeah thank you um enjoyed it um and thanks to you all for listening um as always uh we're really grateful for you taking the time um if you'd like to find some more resources to to read listen to and watch you can find plenty uh at john's website uh, johnwyatt.com um, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we're always interested to hear questions from from listeners or suggestions for things we could talk about. Uh, we've got a new email address that's molad m o l a d 
at premiere.org.uk. So please do drop us a line. Um, uh, if you're new to the podcast and you want to kind of get your teeth into something else, uh, there's lots of episodes in our back catalogue. You could scroll down the feed to find. We talked a lot about COVID when we began, but we've also covered the fact there was a whole episode about the legacy of John Stott to mark what would have been his 100th birthday month last year. Um, so you can find out um, you can find out loads more about him he's a fascinating character um, and if you want to find some of my journalism you can go to my website that's tswyatt.com and otherwise uh, we'll, we'll speak to you again I hope uh, next week thank you you've been listening to Matters of Life and Death a podcast from Premier Unbelievable 